This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 339th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new hadrosaur from Japan. Yeah, they have some good hadrosaurs too. Yeah. we. I mean, they don't talk about hadrosaurs a lot, but we just had the Kamuisaurus, but now we have another one already. We also have a fun fact about the longest living gigantic theropods. And we have dinosaur of the day, Cryptops. But before we get into all of that... As always, we'd like to thank some of our patrons, and this week we have two new patrons to thank, and they are A. Moose and Jeremy Stevens. So thank you both very much for joining. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. We're getting really close to our next milestone. Yeah, we're only five patrons away from our live Q&A, so hopefully that happens soon. (laughs) Hint, hint. (laughs) (laughs) But real quick, I want to round out our thank yous with eight more patrons and this week they are ranger chris from dino for hire bill jago risa jonah pippa ceratops bradley florida fossil hunter and dino mo yes thank you so much for all of your support and we keep this podcast going because of you all and if you're not part of it yet then we invite you to join our community that's patreon.com slash inodino but real quick before we get into our news i want to do a quick correction thanks to one of our patrons for sharing this on our discord last week we talked about the march of the titanosaurs exhibit at the australian age of dinosaurs museum in winton australia out in the outback and i mentioned that i thought they took some of the tracks from the lark quarry which is even more remote (laughs) and brought them over to the australian age of dinosaurs museum but actually the trackway at the australian age of dinosaurs museum is not from the Lark Quarry, it's from somewhere else. So the Lark Quarry exists in its current state, possibly because it's heritage listed as a national monument. So you probably can't carve out chunks of it and ship it somewhere else. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay, now that that's cleared up, into our news. And as we often like to do, we're going to kick it off with our new dinosaur, our new hadrosaur from Japan. And this one was written by... Yoshitsugu Kobayashi and others and published in Scientific Reports. And as I hinted at, it's a new hadrosaur from Japan. Its name is Yamatosaurus Izanagii. And Yamatosaurus, and I'm just going to pull their etymology straight from the paper because I think it's really well written. Yamatosaurus, quote, refers to the ancient name for a region of the Japanese archipelago, including the western half of the main island, Honshu Island, Shikoku Island, and the northern half of Kyushu Island, which was ruled by the Yamato Kingdom from the 3rd to 7th century, end quote. 
So it's named after the Yamato Kingdom, and it's because that was in the region at the time. It's a kingdom dinosaur. It is, yes. <laughs> and then Izanagi, quote, refers to a deity in Japanese mythology which created eight countries of Yamato with another deity, Izanami, which makes me wonder, is Izanami going to be the next <laughs> dinosaur name, based on the oldest history book in Japan called Kojiki, Records of Ancient Matters, published in 712 Common Era. And in that book, the first country created was the Awaji Island, followed by Shikoku, Oki, Kyushu, Iki, Tsushima, Sado, and Honshu Islands. It's a lot of islands. It is. There are a ton of islands in what is, yeah, I guess, geologically called the Japanese archipelago. This one was actually found on Awaji, which I think is why they named it, you know, in this way that makes Awaji sound like a very important place by this deity. And Awaji is actually ranked 50th in size of the Japanese islands. So that means there's at least 50. Yeah, there's, I think there's a lot more. It's actually not that small. It's still bigger than American Samoa, but it's big enough that you can find dinosaurs on it. That's the important part. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so Yamatosaurus was found back in 2004 and reported on in 2005, but it wasn't donated to its current museum until 2013. And it seems like that's when they started working on preparing it and describing it in a more full, complete new species sort of way. And that's how we got this paper today. Yamatosaurus is from the latest Cretaceous, also known as the Maastrichtian, in the Kitaama Formation. And I don't remember ever talking about that formation before. I don't remember either. I don't think it was mentioned in the Kamuisaurus paper. It might have been, but it, it wasn't in my notes at least. But last year, a different group of researchers reported on a tibiotarsus or lower leg of a Hesper ornithiform, or one of those penguin-like Hesperornis type dinosaurs, which was found in the Kitaama formation on the same island, I think. And as a quick aside, that was also an interesting first. It was the first time a Hesperornithiform was found in a marine formation from the Maastrichtian in Asia. Oh, interesting. I'm surprised. Well, I guess from the Maastrichtian in Asia, maybe that's the key here. It is kind of because cool. it seems like that kind of fossil might be found in marine formations fairly often. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not sure why some of them aren't in marine formations, but some of them aren't. So there are other Hesperornithiforms that were found in Kazakhstan, Mongolia, and Hokkaido, Japan. So it's not even the first one in Japan. But I'm pretty sure the Mongolian ones probably aren't marine because it seems like most of the stuff in Mongolia isn't marine. So maybe that's the case there. And then I'm guessing the one in Hokkaido might not be Maastrichtian. So you have to combine all these <laughs> layers of, you know, Asia plus Maastrichtian plus marine, and then you get first ever. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's not really that well known. It's just like a couple, there's only like one in Kazakhstan, one in Hokkaido and a couple in Mongolia. And at least that's all that's on paleobio database. So far. Yes. It is a like a more of a bird dinosaur than a lot of the dinosaurs we talk about. So its fossils are probably more fragile and a little bit harder to find in that way, despite it being marine. Aside from that Hesper ornithiform, the other fossils I could find in the Kitaama formation are all mollusks. There are a bunch of ammonoids, there's a nautilid, and a presumably large snail named Gigantocapulus problematicus. <laughs> It's something giant and problematic. Yeah. 
I feel like there's probably a fun story there, but I couldn't find the history of it very easily. It's always easier to find stuff on vertebrates than invertebrates. So yeah, if anybody knows why it has this fun name, let us know. But Maybe it was a problem to excavate. That's what I was guessing too. Like irritator. Yeah, exactly. And then there's there are other gigantocapulous snails, you know, other species. Other species, yeah. Which it must be big because it's got gigant in it, but I couldn't find any pictures or anything. It's when you get to the non-invertebrate stuff, it's always as harder to find pictures and information. It's mostly just like lists of species names that you find when you search for these things. But the important thing here is that ammonites are very helpful for dating dinosaur finds. And because it was found in this marine sediment, we've got a pretty narrow range in when it was fossilized. We think it was about 71.8 million years ago, plus or minus about 100,000 years. That is a pretty narrow window. I mean, usually 100,000 years is not a very impressive thing to narrow down to, but when we're talking about dinosaurs, it's good. (laughs) Then it's really good. Yeah. So like I said, Yamatosaurus was found on Awaji Island, but even though it's an island now, it certainly wasn't back when Yamatosaurus was roaming the earth because I had that fun fact a while ago about Japan. Even at the very latest Cretaceous, Japan was still firmly connected to the rest of Laurasia. I think it was roughly 20 million years ago that the Japanese sea formed when Japan split away from the rest of Asia. So we wouldn't really expect to find some unique island fauna on this island because it's an island because at the time probably wasn't an island. Yamatosaurus itself in the discovery, this Yamatosaurus maybe I should say, isn't a very complete find, unfortunately. It's got four neck vertebrae, a back vertebra, three cervical ribs, or those thin neck bones that sort of run along the neck next to the vertebrae, a coracoid, 12 isolated teeth, a right dentary, and some other bits. But that was enough to know that it was a unique species. Yeah, it's essentially all based on its teeth. (laughs) Oh, interesting. What was unique about its teeth? So the biggest thing is that there's only one tooth per socket in some cases. I don't know if all, I think it's just like specific teeth. There was only one per socket. Mm -hmm. A lot of dinosaurs that have dental batteries have two or three, maybe even more. I don't know. They can have tons of these teeth because they have, you know, hundreds to even a thousand teeth in their mouth. Right. They got to grind that food somehow. Yeah. (laughs) And part of the way they get so many is by like having lots of teeth in the same socket, essentially. And I'm using the term socket a little bit loosely, but anyway. That's probably the biggest thing, especially for something in the Maastrichtian, because that's more of like an earlier basal hadrosauroid type thing you would expect to see. In addition, the teeth are also missing what are called branched ridges where the teeth meet. And I think that's the common wear pattern that you get in the dental batteries, or maybe it's just a shape of the tooth that aids in that wearing of food when Mm. it's, you know, if it's chewing. So maybe it ate a little bit differently. Yeah, presumably. And then there are also some other details about angles of the jawbones that they used in naming the species, but nothing from the vertebrae. So one of these, again, where like different dinosaurs used completely different parts of the body mm-hmm. for naming new species. And they didn't have any weight-bearing bones whatsoever, really essentially no limb uh, bones, period. So it's hard to estimate its size. Yeah. And it's it's also hard to figure out like how it was related in terms of whether it was quadrupedal or bipedal or anything like that, because we just don't have any of those bones. We don't have any sacrum. We don't have any of the tail. We're missing quite a bit. But yeah, we couldn't figure out its size. We also couldn't figure out its age because we don't have good bones for the lags. 
They say that the dentary is on a scale of a typical large, quote unquote, presumably adult hadrosaurid. For example, the recently discovered Kamuisaurus and Yamatosaurus are both on the order of roughly 50 centimeters or over a foot and a half. That's just the jawbone. <laughs> so yeah, it's a pretty big jaw. So you're not going to see that on like a 10 foot long dinosaur. This is going to be a, a pretty big, maybe 30 feet ish is a rough estimate. But yeah, we, we really can't tell because a jaw and a few neck vertebrae isn't going to tell you too much. Except we did learn one helpful thing from the vertebrae and that's they're mostly fused together. So they describe it as, quote, at least close to maturity, end quote. Mm, one of those subadults. Maybe, but it, I think it's like greater than or equal to, like it was either a nearly fully adult subadult or a nearly skeletally mature adult, or maybe even just a skeletally mature adult, like it's a greater than or equal to situation. Mm. So yeah, it was probably an adult, I guess, or adult-ish. Adult-ish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of those new adults. <laughs> yeah. Yamatosaurus. They call a hadrosaurid, which is more specific than hadrosauroid. But phylogenetically, it's really basal. It's actually near hadrosaurus fulci, which I, now I'm wondering if it should be fulci since there's two eyes. But I always hear fulci. I don't know. I'm always second guessing my pronunciations. <laughs> but Yamatosaurus, they think, was a hadrosaurid based on some details of the skeleton. But it wouldn't be too surprising if it got pulled out of Hadrosauridae into Hadrosauroidea because Yamatosaurus is missing the biceps tubercle, which affects forelimb movement and is a common feature on pretty much all Hadrosauroids. So yeah, it's, it's basically got this thing in common with Hadrosauroids that they're saying it's like the most basal Hadrosaurid essentially, but I could see somebody else looking at it and saying like, no, it's just one of the most derived Hadrosauroids going to be one of those things. Or they could make a case that, oh, it, it's got this one missing feature like hadrosauroids, but it's still hadrosauridae because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So that's where the authors landed on it. But I, also, we don't have that much of the skeleton. So odds are when we find more of the skeleton, that'll also help to flesh out its exact position. Once we find X, Y, and Z. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as far as what Yamatosaurus means for our overall understanding of hadrosaurs, the authors say that Eastern Asia may have been a refuge for basal hadrosauroids, while much of the rest of the world was full of lambiosaurines and sauralophenes, like Parasaurolophus and Amontosaurus, and other more dramatic-looking individuals. But I don't think that's the best analysis of it, because Camuisaurus is a really close relative of Amontosaurus. It's from the same time period, and it's also from Japan. So... Yes, Hokkaido and Awaji are pretty far apart, but in terms of evolutionary scale and the fact that none of this was islands at the time, it was just the end of Laurasia, I don't, I don't know if I buy it. <laughs> Hard to say without the fossils. Yeah. Plus, we have lots of other formations where we have lambiosaurines and sauralophenes coexisting, so I don't think it would be too surprising if we had Camuisaurus and Amontosaurus coexisting. You know, we have such a sparse record. These are basically the only two good finds we've had recently from Japan of hadrosaurs that, yeah, it's still just a couple pieces of a thousand or 10,000 piece puzzle that we have so far. I don't think it's in the paper itself, but there is a nice piece of paleo art that shows Kamuisaurus and Yamatosaurus together. 
which again, <laughs> could have happened. And both look superficially like a typical sorolophene. They gave Camuisaurus more of that Montasaurus style back ridge, but they both have, you know, just your standard, what would have traditionally been called the duck build mouth <laughs> with the beak on the end of it and all that kind of stuff. There's no big head crest. It's just pretty typical. Even the arms are sort of in between where it's like that could be quadrupedal or bipedal. Just one of the most generic looking hadrosaurs you could draw, I think. But pretty against that sunset. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice piece of art. That isn't to say that Yamatosaurus didn't have any cool features, though, because when you only found the jaw and some neck vertebrae, you're not going to know if it had some cool head structure or some other thing on its body. Yeah, it might have been a real weirdo. Could have been. Could have been like a Parasaurolophus type. We just don't know. And if you want to see Yamatosaurus, it's stored at the Museum of Nature and Human Activities in Hyogo Sanda City, Hyogo Prefecture in Japan, which has a dinosaur display. I looked it up, so I need to add that to our map. But I don't actually know if they have Yamatosaurus on display. So if you go there, you might still not be able to see it. Because see some other dinosaur stuff. So it wouldn't be a wasted trip. And if you have an in with the collections manager, maybe they'll let you look at it in a drawer. Hmm. So going from Japan to England, got a little update on Dippy going to Norwich Cathedral from July 13th to October 30th. We've talked about it before, and it's free to see Dippy over there. But they also have plans to have 20 other dinosaurs around the city. And they're going to be all T-Rex sculptures painted by mostly local artists. And there's going to be a map where people can download to find them all. So it's, we've seen stuff like this before. I think the first time I saw it was with moose sculptures. <laughs> yeah, there was a Snoopy thing with Charles Schultz. Yeah. And then I, they had a wolf thing in North Carolina when I was living there. Yeah, we saw the moose in, where was that, Alberta? Or Maine? I can't remember anymore. I think it might have been Maine. Yeah, but I like these concepts because you get really different styles with each sculpture. Yeah, it's a good idea. I don't think we've seen it before with dinosaurs that I can remember. I guess Woodstock. Oh, no, it was Snoopy. Yeah, Snoopy's not a dinosaur. No, Snoopy's a dog. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they're calling it the Summer of Dinosaurs, which I like that. And they're going to have dinosaur-themed workshops and film nights. And the sculptures, the T-Rex sculptures, are also going to come back in 2022 along with some step mammoth sculptures. So they're going to combine T-Rex with mammoth sculptures. Well, I don't know how to feel about that, though, because people are always confused that mammoths didn't coexist with dinosaurs. And putting sculptures next to each other probably isn't going to help that. Well, they won't be probably next to each other, just around the city. If we can convince them to stick like a geological timeline in between them <laughs> to explain that they didn't coexist, then I'd be really into it. Maybe one of the artists will paint that somehow. Oh, yeah. That reminds me in Australia how we saw that piece of art where it was a koala bear wearing a panda bear suit. And the joke was like, neither of these are bears. Yeah. Maybe you could do something like that. Like there's a T-Rex in the mammoth and a mammoth and the T-Rex and the, the joke is that they weren't around at the same time or something. I'm not an artist, so that's not a very good idea, but there's maybe something there. Except I think giant pandas are bears. Yeah. Yeah. They, I think after that art was created, they further an analyzed the panda genome or something and figured out like actually pandas are bears. Koalas still aren't bears, but pandas are. So in that case, maybe it's a not bear pretending to be an actual bear. There we go. <laughs> a new interpretation of the same art. <laughs> <laughs> I 
But back to the dinosaurs. <laughs> so, I mean, that'd be cool to see. Uh, if anyone's around and sees the T-Rex sculptures, we'd love to see some pictures. Yeah, especially if there's one that's particularly well decorated. Mm-hmm. Especially if somebody glues a bunch of feathers to one of the T-Rex to make it look like a feathered T-Rex, that would be good. Oh, yeah. I wonder how well that would hold up. <laughs> Maybe not well. Because you have to take into account weather, right? Yeah, they could do like we were talking about last week where you sort of sculpt the feathers into something a little more weather resistant than just like faux fur. Mm -hmm. So over in the U.S., we've talked before about these dinosaur footprints, but I didn't realize you could hike to them on a trail. This is in Colorado, in Comanche National Grassland. Is that the uh, in the U.S. Forest Service? Yeah, we talked about this before with Bruce Schumacher. This was a long time ago, episode 120, and he was the South Zone paleontologist for the U.S. Forest Service. I think he might be the only one, because I think they reduced that, unfortunately, down to a single position, mm. if I remember right. So he became the only paleontologist for, I don't remember how many hundreds of thousands or millions of acres or whatever. It's just a crazy amount of land. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of paleontology you can do on it. It sounded like a really cool site. Lots of sauropod tracks. Yeah. Also allosaurus tracks. And they've got these two long parallel trackways from two apatosaurus. So this hike, it's rated as a hard hike. If you go, be warned. It's an 11-mile round trip. There's, I guess, 300 vertical feet. And the trail's mostly along the banks of the Purgatoire River. Yeah, that's where the tracks are, so that makes sense. Mm -hmm. They said it's best to go in the spring and fall because there's not much shade and it can be really hot. The, it sounds like that's the real difficulty, the length and sun exposure of it. It might be at a little bit of altitude, too, being in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Doesn't help. But it could be worth it because you get to more than 1,300 dinosaur footprints at the end. Nice. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of footprints. That's not a lot of dinosaur track sites you can go to that have over 1,000 tracks. Yeah, it's really cool. And then, so it's Apatosaurus, Allosaurus. The tracks are about 150 million years old. All the favorites of the Morrison Formation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that does sound like a nice hike. There's a little bit of a question mark there because well, it is long and hot. <laughs> I feel like I would have to get in a little better shape before I took on that hike. I definitely would too. If I walk more than like a mile or two, I start getting worn out now since I've spent so little time outside lately. <laughs> yeah. Although I'll say I'm not I'm not quite there yet, but yeah. <laughs> I see. You don't want to be lumped in with my sedentary ways. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, this trail also passes by the remains of the Dolores Mission and Cemetery, and then about a mile and a half beyond that is the dinosaur track site. Oh, and if the hike is too long, it's possible to bike, but they said watch out for prickly plants because that could hurt your tires. Hmm. And in the fall, the U.S. Forest Service is hoping to start up their guided auto tours again. Before the pandemic, it was happening on Saturdays in May, June, September, and October. Spring and fall when it's not too hot. So I'm guessing that's like a bus tour? Well, according to their description, if you're participating in the tour, you need your own four-wheel drive high-clearance vehicles. Oh, that's exciting. And the tour takes all day, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Oh, cool. So it's like a off-road, group off-roading expedition. Yeah. That could be fun. Although I don't think our Nissan Leaf could handle it. Well, I guess in addition to the track sites and the Dolores Mission and Cemetery, there's also rock art and a historic district. There's a lot to see in that day. 
Yeah. I feel like when we talked to Bruce, it was like this remote thing with nothing around it, but I guess it's not quite that barren of a landscape. Maybe it's hard to get to. It's true. So moving a little north, got an update on Dinosaur Kingdom. If that sounds familiar, it's this plan for a theme park in upstate New York. And to recap that, Neil Gold is a real estate investor and developer and came up with this idea after taking his grandson to a dinosaur theme park. So now he's building one. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't like it. He wanted to make a better one. <laughs> no, I think he really liked it. So he wanted to make his own. He just want a closer one. <laughs> Could be, yeah. And the project has been proposed by the same company that runs other parks like Field Station Dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. So some details on the plan. They're going to have animatronic dinosaurs and dinosaur statues. There's going to be a train around the park. I think so you can see all the statues. Fossil dig area and playground. The proposal, it's very large. They're saying 137 acres. And it's going to be about 10 miles away from Legoland, New York, which is currently under construction and opening this year. I had no idea there was a Legoland Me being built in New York. <laughs> That's cool. I Yeah, the... Uh, Field Station Dinosaurs wasn't the most exciting thing that I've been to. It sounds like this has a little more going on because there wasn't a train. I think there might have been something they call the fossil dig area, but I don't think there was much of a playground. To be fair, we went to Field Station Dinosaurs the year it opened, so they might have added some things. Yeah, they might have. The animatronics weren't super exciting there either. Oh, I, I thought it was pretty because they had so much space that it's just you and then these giant animatronic dinosaurs <laughs> out in a field. Well, there, I mean, there were plants too. So like you some didn't of them. see them all at once. You oh, yeah. You yeah. walk around a trail. Yeah. Some of them are near trees, but some of them, I think it was the pachycephalosaur butting heads. They're just in a field. Mm, I don't remember that one. I mostly remember the sauropod, which was like just like very slowly its neck swaying from side to side. And mm-hmm. That was like the only motion it was doing, which might be realistic, I guess. And then they had some smaller buildings, and one of them had a T-Rex made out of balloons. Yeah, <laughs> which I think ended up, didn't it travel a little bit or something? Or maybe no, they just made a separate just, one somewhere else? We saw else? balloon dinosaurs in another, or we heard about them in another exhibit, I think in Japan. Yeah, I think so too. Well, that's cool. I mean, maybe with the Legoland right there, it'll draw more visitors. Well, you can make a weekend of it or a long weekend mini vacation. And maybe the Legoland will have some Lego dinosaurs. Oh, probably. They're always up for making some big old dinosaurs. I feel like they have that in the San Diego Legoland. Yeah, I think so. They definitely have it at the Mall of America Legoland, which is really mm. tiny. Because I know, I know that they've made Lego dinosaurs because the company I used to work for had a giant Lego hadrosaur <laughs> in the office. And when there were events... They had extra Lego pieces around that you could use to like, because they had a piece of the hadrosaur kind of missing and you could decorate it yourself. And yeah. a lot of people gave that hadrosaur a mustache. That <laughs> was like a Parasaurolophus, right? I think that's what they went with. Yeah. It's like green and blue. That's mm-hmm. a good one. So maybe Dinosaur Kingdom and Legoland will work together somehow. Join forces. So by the time this airs, International Dinosaur Day has already happened. But I wanted to mention it because... Well, first we learned that it's only one of a few dinosaur days throughout the year. Yeah, it's one of the international dinosaur days. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But we got to talk to paleontologist Nizar Ibrahim, who, among many other things, is a National Geographic explorer. He did like 20-something interviews to talk about International Dinosaur Day. And 
So I'm bringing this up because one of the questions we asked him, which you'll hear later, but in a few episodes from now, <laughs> is, you know, what's a good way to celebrate these kinds of days? And his response was visit museums. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah. So things to keep in mind for the upcoming dinosaur days, because, you know, there's multiple. <laughs> yeah, when we talked to him, it was on May 18th, but different places report International Dinosaur Day is May 18th, May 20th, May 15th, June 1st, <laughs> maybe all of the above. <laughs> Just celebrate them all. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's, of course, you know, fossil days. Yep. And then there's Dinovember. Dino yeah. yeah. That's the one I think of when I'm thinking of dino holidays. <laughs> yeah, so there were a number of museums that I think had some special stuff going on. Maybe they'll do it for the other dinosaur days, too. I don't know. One of them was Orlando Science Center Dino Digs, their giant hall with co a collection of fossils. They have this VR screen where you interact with dinosaurs. Sounds cool. pretty cool. I think we did that in... Fukui. Yes. I thought that was more of a display. I was thinking of Taichung in Taiwan. They had a screen where you walked in front of it and the dinosaurs moved around a little bit with you. Mm, that sounds familiar. I'm guessing more and more museums have exhibits like this all the time. Yeah, they are pretty fun to interact with. On Twitter on May 18th, International Dinosaur Day, because you got to be specific which one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jurassic World released a video to celebrate the day and it's set to the theme song of Jurassic Park and they had this nice collage of all the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park and the Jurassic World films minus Dominion obviously because it's not out yet. Oh, so no spoilers. Mhm. Mm Which speaking of Jurassic World, the website comic book got an exclusive clip of season 3 of Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. But I think by the time this comes out, season three is already out. <laughs> yes. But if you haven't watched it yet, potential spoilers here. There's a fight scene with Kenji and an Aranosaurus. Oh, the herbivore is stepping up. Mm-hmm. Getting and that, ferocious. Well, the Aranosaurus seems pretty angry and it's taking some of its anger out on a car. Nice. That reminds me of like those videos where somebody's driving through like a drive through safari and like a buffalo or an elephant or something is not happy about the cars being there and charges. Mm -hmm. oh, that's <laughs> a good point. Because I was wondering like, what would have made this particular dinosaur angry? Just something in its, in its space. Yeah. Especially another large thing. Not friendly. Well, Kenji's not that big. Anyway. Well, he's in the car though, right? Oh, he's not in a car. But it takes out its anger on a car? Yeah, there's a car in the area, and it's just kind of trying to push it over or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're right, though. I think the Aranosaurus is angry at something, and Kenji's in the wrong place at the wrong time. I guess we'll find out when we watch it. Yeah. Coming up in an upcoming watch party. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Cryptops. I've also heard it pronounced Creeptops. That was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. It was an abelosaur that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Niger. It looks like other abelosaurids. It's bipedal, it's got a large head and short arms. It was estimated to be 19 to 23 feet long, or 6 to 7 meters long. Not too big. Not too small either. That's true. <laughs> a cryptops had tall vertebral spines. It was a carnivore, and it had a short snout, and its jaws were covered in armor. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The surface of the maxilla, too, was heavily textured or rugose. I guess you see that in abelosaurus. Like I'm thinking Carnotaurus a lot of times has pretty bumpy-looking face in the paleoart. Oh, that's true. Cryptops had these pits and impressions of blood vessels on the maxilla, and that shows that there was some sort of covering attached to the face, which might have been keratin. And that's how it got its name, Cryptops. Oh, cool. It's like keratin? Keratin face? No, it means covered face in Greek. Oh, gotcha. So it had some kind of covering. It was described by Paul Serino and Steve Brusati, described in 2008. So Creeptops had small teeth, and its maxilla was estimated to be about 10 inches or 25 centimeters long, and it had about 17 or 18 maxillary teeth. It was probably a scavenger. Steve Brusati said in Science Daily, quote, a fast two-legged hyena gnawing and pulling apart a carcass is how we might best imagine Cryptops' dining habits. And in a Routers article, Paul Serino said, quote, the idea was that the animal was sticking its head into carcasses. Interesting. So that's why it's like scavenger elements to it because it might have had this keratin covering, sort of like how vultures don't have feathers on their head. This one has like extra smooth stuff on its head to protect it from the gross guts. Yeah. Well, Serena also said, quote, we think the face was covered with a bill-like material. It would have looked pretty much like the bill of a bird. Interesting. 
Yeah, but it probably just in general would have hunted as well. I doubt it was a obligate scavenger just because that's so uncommon. True. I like the comparison to hyenas though, because those are also mostly predators, but do the occasional scavenging. I guess the main thing is they're carnivores. Yeah, that's true. So the type species is Cryptops paleos. And again, that genus name means covered face in Greek. And the species name paleos means old in Greek. So <laughs> Good old. old covered face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty great. Only one specimen's been found. And these fossils were found in 2000 on an expedition led by Paul Serino. It was a partial skeleton found in the western Tenere Desert. The holotype is an adult. It includes a maxilla, vertebrae, ribs, pelvic girdle, and sacrum. And Cryptops is the oldest abelosaurid found in Africa and the oldest indisputable abelosaurid in the world. Indisputable. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Paul Serino and Steve Brusati considered Cryptops to be a basal abelosaurid. In 2021, this year, Matthew Carano and others found it to be a chimera and suggested that the postcranial fossils, particularly the pelvis and sacrum, which were found to articulated, because they were found 15 meters away from the maxilla, that those postcranial fossils actually belong to a carcharodontosaurid, such as Eocarcaria, which was found nearby in the same formation and named in the same 2008 paper. Uh-oh. Yes. Well, either way, creeptops with eocarcaria help show an earlier stage of abelosaurids and carcharodontosaurids in Gondwana. But maybe we'll see later papers further debating what belongs to creeptops. <laughs> yeah. It'd be helpful to find a more complete fossil. Always, always more fossils. <laughs> yep. So the spinosaurid Suchomimus, the sauropod Nigersaurus, the ornithopods Uranosaurus and Lurdusaurus, and the crocodilian Sarcosuchus also lived at the same time and place as Creeptops and Eocarcaria. So a lot of large predators. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And then there were also fish and sharks and bivalves. You don't want to be on the land or in the water. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, even if you're a carnivore, it's dangerous. Because <laughs> of the other carnivores. Mm-hmm. And our fun fact of the day, as promised, is about how big and how old these gigantic theropods could live. Specifically, if I had to summarize it, I would say T-Rex is often considered the largest, strongest, and longest lived theropod. Biggest and baddest. Yeah, <laughs> and oldest. But it just lost the lifespan record to another large theropod. Oh. Yeah. So real quick, before I get into that, I have to do a quick sort of background on lags because that's really what the original paper was about. And much of this comes from a paper by Thomas Cullen and others published in Royal Society B. So basically, they wanted to see which bones best preserve lags. So they took a sampling of different theropods, cut up the bones, looked at different bones, and saw which ones had the best lags in them, as you would like to do in science. But it's not always that easy because it's hard to find dinosaur bones to cut into. In general, not all bones preserve lags or annual growth rings equally. 
And this study looked at lags in tyrannosaurids and carcharodontosaurids in particular throughout the skeletons because they wanted to see how lags varied in what they called skeletally mature gigantic theropods. It's <laughs> very specific. Yeah. So they picked those two groups because they evolved a large size independently. So hopefully with their massive size and different family trees, we might be able to see something in general about how these gigantic theropods handled their lags, whether or not they evolved in the same group. In general, what they found was that with these large or gigantic theropods, lags preserved better in weight-bearing bones, while other bones were frequently remodeled. This was actually a little bit surprising because there were other recent studies that looked at fibula of smaller theropods and found that the fibula was a better bone for describing lags in these lighter weight theropods. And weirdly, the fibula, which is a leg bone, is tiny and not weight bearing in these large theropods. <laughs> so like the where first I read that, I was like, wait a second, the fibula, that seems like a weight bearing bone, but it's actually not a weight bearing bone <laughs> in these large theropods. Hmm. And it turns out since it's not weight bearing, I guess that might be why it can get remodeled all the time, presumably, and just change around because it's just not all that important of a bone, I guess. I don't know. Huh. But even with these weight bearing bones, every bone in a dinosaur body in general tends to be missing a lot of the early lags due to remodeling. The bone structure of a juvenile or like a hatchling dinosaur is very different than a skeletally mature one. And it changes quite a bit. It's like when we, I was talking about the bone marrow in humans and how we're all born with a red marrow in every bone. And then as we get older, it turns into yellow marrow or it goes away. Mm -hmm. Same kind of stuff happens in dinosaur bones. It changes over time. And so these early lags that are near the center of the bone get remodeled into other things or they become hollow or change in other ways. So we can't get that record of the earliest lags hmm. in most dinosaurs in general, even if you're using the best bones. So really it's all about finding the bones which have that best record of lags, even though you know it's probably going to be incomplete no matter which bone you're picking, unless it's a very young individual. So as a result, they confirmed that T-Rex grew in a very fast spurt compared to Cargarodontosaurids and really other dinosaurs in general. They were looking at Sioux, and they found 23 lags in Sioux. The first three to five, so that would be, because we all know Sioux is about 30 years old, from when it was seven to 10-ish, are spaced pretty far apart, which means that it was still growing rapidly, so that circumference is increasing. That's how they plotted it, is the circumference on the y-axis and the lag number on the x-axis, mm -hmm. which means that a lot of these early lags are clearly missing because the first lag that they had was about a foot in circumference. Oh my gosh. So it didn't grow to a foot in circumference in its first year. You know that we're missing a lot of these earlier points along the line. So what you end up doing is you put a best fit line on the lags that you have and you know that it's probably basically like a third order function. So it would start out growing slowly and then you get this huge growth spurt and then it trails off. So there's sort of an asymptote at the beginning and the end. And when you put that on a Tyrannosaurus, because those three to five early lags are spaced so far apart, there's a really rapid growth spurt, just like we saw in the Thomas Carr paper, where it's like they grew sort of slowly in the beginning, and then they had this huge growth spurt in their teenage years, and then they tapered off as an adult. Hmm. And that best fit line basically estimates Sue was about 30 years old, which is consistent with the earlier estimates of Sue's age. Mm -hmm. The more interesting 
dinosaur is called the Campanus carcharodontosaurid, which has the specimen number MMCHPV65. I don't think it has any other clever name to it, even though it's, it is becoming a pretty important dinosaur. It's just the Campanus carcharodontosaurid. I couldn't even find what museum specifically it's in. I think given that specimen number, it's at the Museo Municipal Ernesto Bachman in Via El Chacon, Nuquén, Argentina. But I'm not positive about that because I saw something where it's like that V might mean it's in some other place. I don't know. It was it was hard for me to figure out. Can we call it CC? Campanus carcharodontosaurus? <laughs> sure. We'll call it CC. I like that. <laughs> so CC has five more legs in its leg bone. And they all, again, look like the top of an asymptote. You know, it's, it's leveling off in its age. So just looking at that, you're like, okay, so it's got five more legs than Sue. That's not a big deal. But because the early lags don't seem to be changing much, it looks like it had already reached a pretty mature state. And they're not at as steep of an angle as you get with Sue. So it's not like as much of a growth spurt, basically. Another way to put that is the first lag is also about a foot in circumference, so it had been doing a lot of growing, but 28 lags later, it's still significantly smaller than T-Rex. So they started around the same size, but it was basically almost done growing 28 lags ago, whereas T-Rex 23 lags ago was still in its teenage years, basically. Hmm. When you do the best fit line on these Carcharodontosaurid data points, you end up with an estimate that it was probably in its mid-40s when it died, or roughly 15 years older than Sue. That is a big difference for these big theropods. Yeah. It's like 50% older. That's Especially a huge difference. when you consider how much Sue lived through. Yes. Yeah, I have no idea. I wanted to find out more about this Campanus carcharodontosaurid, and I found a couple papers that reference it, but it doesn't. Sue is like everywhere in the literature, mm -hmm. basically. This one is still pretty new. I think it was actually discovered relatively recently. The first record I could find with a little bit of searching was a 2017 presentation by Juan Ignacio Canale et al. And they pointed out that the Campanus cacarodontosaurid might be a new species, and it's probably a close relative of Giganotosaurus, but I, I don't think it's been named. Maybe that's why. Maybe the, the research is still ongoing and it's going to be named a new genus soon. And then we'll have a whole bunch more information about it. But I'm, this is like a big mystery for me now. I want to learn more about it. Yeah. What's up with Cece? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is about 30 million years older than T-Rex in terms of, you know, geological age, not So it's older old. in both ways. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I struggle with that because usually when we're talking about old, we're talking about like geological time. That's why I call it the longest lived because that seems like a more specific way to phrase it. But it was around at about the same time as Giganotosaurus in the same general area. So it's likely that it is yeah, a close relative of Giganotosaurus and maybe a new species. Well, I hope we learn more. Yeah. There were a couple other little interesting details in this paper, too. They had a subadult Allosaurus from the Field Museum, which had 12 lags in it, and they were all almost like perfectly linear. And so the way to interpret that is basically these earlier theropods might have had a more linear growth. They didn't have that crazy growth spurt like you get in T-Rex or to a, probably a lesser extent Carcharodontosaurids. They also talk about where the best place to find lags is in different groups of dinosaurs. We already mentioned the gigantic theropods. You want to look at these weight-bearing bones like a femur, if you can. 
Hadrosaurs are similar, which we mentioned a little bit with Yamatosaurus. We don't have any weight-bearing bones, so we couldn't look for lags. But in smaller theropods, the fibula might be the best bone for counting lags. And in sauropods, non-weight-bearing bones seem to be the best for lag preservation. Hmm. Sort of all over the place. You got to be careful with which dinosaur group you're in, where you do your histology. It's the same with naming a new dinosaur. Yeah. And I think some dinosaurs don't even preserve lags just very well in general. They don't want anyone to know their age. <laughs> yeah. They're very mysterious that way. <laughs> But I think the important thing is that the age estimates always rely on what's missing. So finding the best bones is a big help, but there's still always room for interpretation of like just what that best fit line is interpolating from other ages of that individual. I guess it makes sense. There's so much variation because dinosaurs are so different. Yeah. So you've got to look at them all a little bit differently. Yeah. And also why when people make declarations like Scotty is the new oldest T-Rex versus Sue, it's really like this interpolation of data points of lags, and it's like plus or minus one year. Be interesting to see. I want to see more histology on other like Giganotosaurus and other Carcharodontosaurus to see how old they lived. They might have even been some of the oldest dinosaurs, period, like rivaling sauropods even, which is pretty Ooh, crazy. That'd be weird. Yeah. But cool to think about. And that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. Thanks for listening. If you want links to every news story and a transcript of our dinosaur of the day, head over to our website, inodino.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our email newsletter and you'll get all of that automatically as an email every week when our podcast comes out. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.